Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Have you checked the children? them. The blood of human sacrifice must come from them. The blood of expiation. I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Hey everyone, what you're about to hear is an interview about Ken Russell's incredible and endlessly controversial 1971 film The Devils with author and critic Gretchen Felker Martin, who joined myself, Randall Colburn, and Losers Club co-host Mel Castle on our new limited series spin-off Mel and Randall's Month of Halloween Hell. Mel and Randall's Month of Halloween Hell is a show chronicling our efforts to watch a horror movie every day in October. Every Wednesday, we check in to break down both our reactions to the movies and our decaying mental states. This week, in addition to The Devils, Mel and I discuss Fred Decker's beloved Night of the Creeps, Japan's Criterion Collected Onibaba, 90s teen classic The Craft, 70s psychosexual cult hit The Baby, Scott Derrickson's Sinister, Sinister, and several, several others, including the underseen and undervalued 2000 slasher Cherry Falls. $5 grants you access to the episodes and the Losers Club Patreon, where we've got hundreds of hours of very smart, very funny Stephen King-adjacent content. For now, however, enjoy our interview with Gretchen, whose new novel Manhunt arrives on February 22nd, 2022. To access the Losers Club Patreon, find us over at patreon.com slash thebarons. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special guest interview portion of Randall and Mel's Month of Halloween Hell. This week, Randall and I watched Ken Russell's 1970. 71 film The Devils for the first time. Both of us had never seen it. I think we both thought it was completely fabulous. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. So good. The reason I had it as a must see on my list for October is that one of my absolute favorite media critics and writers, Gretchen Felker Martin, has long touted it as a masterpiece. And I've been following Gretchen's film reviews, essays, tweets, short fiction on her Patreon for years now. I'm really I'm amped as fuck for her debut novel, <laughs> Manhunt, that comes out in February. I am thrilled to pieces that she is game to talk about the devils today. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for saying so many nice things about me. <laughs> 
Of course, all well-deserved. Um, so there's an episode of another podcast, Girls, Guts, and Giallo, where you and the host like really dissect this movie scene by scene. I don't want to rehash too many of the same talking points, but I will point people towards it. If you want to hear like the whole movie and Gretchen talking about it, um, that yeah. is a great place to go. Um, but I will ask you about your first exposure to the movie. And, you know, for me and Randall, it was literally yesterday. We're still absorbing it. But when did you first watch it? What did you think? And how have those first impressions persisted or changed? I first watched it in 2015. So over half a decade ago now. And I was immediately bowled over. I mean, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that the devils fundamentally changed my relationship to film. Um, it's a movie that made me care really deeply about the medium. Um, it was such an emotional experience for me to sit through it, which was nice because at the time I was extremely depressed and hadn't really felt anything strongly in, in weeks or months. Um, this is what I usually trot out when someone asks me what my favorite movie is and I think it's as good an answer as any. The first time that I watched it, by the end I was in tears. I mean this is um this is a story about human frailty and the beauty of human frailty. And that's a very powerful thing to me. Yeah. Yeah, we don't often, I feel like, watch a movie that changes our whole relationship to a medium. And that when you watch it now, that power is still kind of like at least echoed, if not fully present. Absolutely. Having yeah, like, great. having grown with it, Sam, you said you first watched it uh, some years ago. Uh, like, what would you say, how would you say your relationship with the movie has evolved since you first watched it? Are there certain parts you appreciate more? Are there certain things that hit you a little bit deeper? I think if I were to, to pick and choose the elements that have grown on me the most, I've always liked him, but Michael Gotthard as Father John Barre oh, has yeah. definitely definitely become sort of a, a fixture of the movie for me. Just his whole like rock star performance yeah. is so gutsy. And the fact that he was universally panned for it is a real a real crime to me because I feel like he knows what the movie is trying to say. He knows this is all ridiculous theater yes. and his job is not to be some sort of credible priest. It's to be some guy who walks into a room and everyone goes insane because he's hot and loud. <laughs> I love all the reviews that are always like the John Lennon-esque figure of this witch hunter. <laughs> but you're right, like I... I definitely, this is a movie that like knows how to do crowd work. And by crowd work, I mean, they, it actually captures the mania of a crowd. But yeah. his is the voice that is always kind of like, you can sort of always hear him. Um, yeah. he, he's, not, he's not bringing order exactly, but he's like doing the crowd work. Right, he's, he's, he's the spine of the crowd, even yeah. if the shape he's giving it is really horrible. Um, so yeah, that segues. So what are some like moments or lines that when you like think of this movie, what do you see in your mind's eye or like, what do you hear in your mind's ear? The, the two things that I always see are Sister Jeanne's ecstatic visions, um, mm -hmm. flash wet dreams. The first of which features her cleaning Christ as Grandier's feet with her hair. 
Yeah. And then having her hump exposed in front of a crowd and screaming at the crowd that she's beautiful as they mock her. Yeah. Um, which is, is just an almost completely unique moment in all of film um, to insist on the beauty of your deformity. Yeah. To fight back against the image of yourself that other people have right to their faces. And for it to not be done by a sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. You know, Sister Jeanne is at, at best in the most charitable possible light, the most nightmarish mess you can imagine. <laughs> um, and of course the, the second vision she experiences where she fantasizes about licking blood from Christ as Grandier's wounded side which I have no deep personal connection to. I just think it's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love I've, how the, sorry, oh, go ahead, Randall. I was just going to say, I, I come from a religious background and not in the sense that my family, I wasn't raised with it. I found it, you know, for a brief, a very brief, but very intense uh, several years when I was in college. And, um, and I think that concept of, of the blurring of like, sexuality and reverence and the deification like the sexualization of and deification like like blurring and merging together is something you know especially when you think about the mania scenes where the women undress and they they basically like you know lick and splay themselves all over christ on the cross like the thing is like for as blasphemous as that is i was somebody who was from I was in a tongue speaking, small tongue speaking country church uh and there was a lot of tongue speaking and a lot of um of those moments of sort of abandon and um, uh, like, I don't know, like it felt like people had kind of lost control of their bodies sometimes in those moments. Right. And, and even though it goes so deeply sexual in this movie, it's like the things that I witnessed really aren't that far off. Like the, it, like this, the whole, like the wildness of the sexuality, um, it almost sometimes felt like in, in sort of revivalist church services I was in that we were not far from achieving that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do see what you mean. And I feel like that's part of the elemental nature of what everyone who goes in search of God wants from God, which is to believe, even if it's only for a moment, that you're not responsible, that there's, yeah. there's, something else that will catch you there's even a moment in the devils where father barre shouts at all the nuns you will sin you will blaspheme you will not be responsible for your actions i love that yeah yeah um and they're like yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely wilding out yeah i that's um, that's great that you that you brought that up randall i was gonna say too just like not many movies are candid about the connection between eroticism and religion when it yeah. when it is just like so blatant in the paintings the accounts like anything that you read it's like these women were coming they were like praying and they were coming probably yeah, um, and i Hildegard i love hunting in a hundred percent cut breath her entire fucking body of work <laughs> yeah <laughs> And I, and I just love that um, I have not seen a movie that dared to show a makeout scene with a Jesus figure. Like, and, and that's like tame compared to what else happens. But like, even just that, like that he approaches her dressed as Jesus and they full tongue make out. It was like, yes, that is what people want when they pray. Like that is what they are hoping for. <laughs> I mean, how many fucking documentaries have you seen where older nuns talk about masturbating to like, especially yeah. beautiful crucifixes and stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's all just set right next to each other. It's dressed yeah. up, but it's. <laughs> I'm I'm not a, a great fan of subtlety. There's a, a wonderful little comedy show called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Which yes. Features, yeah. Big fan. A, a fake horror author, Garth Marenghi. And at one point he says, I know authors who use subtext and they're all cowards. And I think I agree with that unironically. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want the devils every time I go to the movies. Yes. Plus, um, plus when you get rid of subtext, then you just have image, right? Like it's, it doesn't even yeah. get you closer to like, here is my thesis. It, it gets you closer to expression that is raw and like yeah that that maybe plays into like so another question I had was like what questions kind of pop into your head when you watch this because I don't think it's a movie that's like it Ken Russell did say it's like the only political movie I ever made um and certainly it's about power and it's it's about abandon as you said and it's about governance in France during a certain time period um but it's also a little bit unpindownable and it kind of acts as, at least for me, it acted as a little bit of a Rorschach text. Like I have my own kind of like read on like what's going on here, but like what questions kind of pop up for you that are presented by all the expressions in the film? I mean, to me, it's, as I said earlier, it's a movie about, about suffering and frailty and the sort of universality of that. And on top of that, it's a movie about repression and the things that repression does to the human experience of the world. It's about these women who are effectively bottled because they're unwanted, they're, they're useless, they're deformed, they're drained on their family's finances, so they're packed off to a nunnery and literally locked inside. And I think that on its face, it's very interesting to act, well, what happens to a person if you do that to them and, and then spend the rest of their life telling them how good it is and what a privilege they have? I, I think that's incredibly relevant mm -hmm. yeah. in the world as, as we live in it still. And then they get to reinforce too that strange contradiction of like, we are unable to do anything, but we are better than everyone else. Right, right. Their, their value lies in their, their nothingness as mm -hmm. people. I, yeah, and to me, Grandier is like is almost part of that as well. Like, I I thought this movie was about how we are incapable of containing necessary contradictions in like public life. Like, he is the most successful at doing it because he can be this priest who does not embody priestly behavior. He's going around being a philanderer, impregnating people. Right. Um, and it's sort of eating him up inside. Like we know he's a rather tortured figure, even from the beginning, he's kind of pursuing annihilation in his own way. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's the most successful kind of model for like, I'm pursuing a contradiction here. I'm doing it willfully. I kind of like know what that means for me. Um, but other people can't contain them. Like sister Jane, can't, John can't like contain the idea that she could lust after anyone and also be a nun or mm -hmm. um that right. she could have this hump and be beautiful she she believes both at the same time but that is like too much for her body to like yeah. actually contain yeah and you know once once you pull the context back the figures who are d defining the terms of the struggle in which these characters are all involved the um the struggle for the way that france is going to be governed in the coming centuries exist totally without conscience in their their manifold contradictions i mean you don't see the king or cardinal richelieu lying awake at night wondering if they're doing the right thing yeah 
Um, but this is a movie about public life and about sort of the fragility of public image. And it's all just sort of a, a shadow play in the devils. You know, it's, it's extremely real until the moment someone points and says, wait a minute. I was, uh, I was drawn to, to, I think just on the personal level, like when you look at Grandier and, and I think I, I texted Mel last night, I said, I think a lot of this torture and a lot of this anger at him just comes from the fact that they're jealous, you know, cause they want to have sex too. And, um, and I mean, I, as somebody who used to be religious, I think I saw a lot of that, you know, like I think when people would sin or backslide or whatever, I would kind of pick up upon that subtext with, with people in my life where you like part of the anger that they're taking out on them is almost a, um, you know, a reaction to the fact that they're doing what they wish they could be doing. Um, and yeah, and that was just another thing I took away that I think speaks to um, those ideas of of contradictions with those characters and and how, you know, there is something so noble about Grandier, you know, despite him not living up to sort of the prescribed notion of how he should be acting, um, but there was a purity within him that no one else had. So yeah. I think that's true. Um, I, I was also raised religious, and I think that very often public or especially group outrage can for can function as a kind of um proxy for sexuality mm-hmm. that you get you get all whipped up and furious and you cultivate these extremely hot caustic emotions inside yourself and you do all of these things because you're fundamentally not really existing as a full human being yeah and so it it needs to come out somewhere. It's it's like the the festival that they make out of his execution. You know, it's yeah. it's completely without pretense. It's it's just a big fucking emotional orgy. Yeah. And everyone's got their own reasons for indulging, but it, it comes right. out, yeah, in this in this giant astonishing display that seems like a mob with one agenda, but it's actually like very stratified it's very strategic this mob depending on like where you're sitting in it right Um, you know there's there's the aristocratic and clerical instigators and then there's the body of the mob itself which is on nobody's side i mean you know there's the the part where they're all calling for grandia to be given the kiss of peace and then as soon as father mignon gives it to him suddenly everyone's screaming judas judas I did love the dark humor in this too. Like not it's just, really funny. It is. I mean, yeah. at points, yeah. And uh, but I guess I didn't realize how and I this is a very good thing, um, if we're speaking about like unsubtlety, but I knew I was like in for a ride when the crocodile entered the picture. <laughs> I was just like, oh my god, he is throwing it at a man. <laughs> like that yep. was very I was just like, okay, like I love I love this movie is operating on that level. Um Mel, do you want to ask about our notions of trash? Yes, I'm, I'm I very do. intrigued to hear this answer. Yes. Um, there's a wonderful, I think it was when you were taking questions on Patreon a couple of years ago, someone asked about your definition of trash and you, you brought this movie up and you said a lot of lovely things about the portrayal of, of marginalized bodies and even features as they pertain to, to trash. And um, I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on that today and, and just get a little bit of a recapitulation of that. Absolutely. Um... I think, so it's been famously said that Hollywood's real interest is not money, it's prestige. Yeah. 
they want to cultivate a certain image. And in our day and age, that image is very sort of smooth and unobjectionable, um, culturally relevant, but not substantial. You know, you backtrack 60 or 70 years and that image is all about sort of a, a hard jawed kind of masculinity and the formation of these images that we've internalized and made sort of the templates for, for how we exist. But anyway, Trash is a movie that does not care about prestige. It's a movie that doesn't care if everyone in it is degraded, if its subject matter is gonna get laughed out of a serious theater, if mainstream critics will turn their noses up at it like they did at the Devils. Trash is something that people make for themselves not to fit an image. And I, by necessity, that often makes it look cheaper or weirder. And it often means that the people acting in it are, are kind of weirdos themselves. <laughs> certainly the people making it. Um, trash is, is all about not pursuing whatever monomyth your moment in history is, is oriented toward. No part of the devils cares about being polite or structured. It doesn't care about really any of the values of its time. You know, there's there's no referendum there on free love or like Nixonian politics or, or Vietnam. <laughs> um, it's a movie that exists because Ken Russell is a fucking insane, horny Catholic guy. <laughs> yeah, I love that he was Catholic at the time. Yeah, that rules. This, yeah. Um, and it does strike me as like extremely heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't call it pious, but I think that Russell understands that piety is very boring and sort of self-serving. Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah. I definitely, when I was watching this, I certainly didn't, you know, for as ma many um, uh, cries of blasphemy and so on and so forth that people lodged at it, I didn't really find it blasphemous at all. I found it, I thought that there was like a real... Uh, note of like genuine faith and like kind of at the heart of it um yeah. I mean I can see why it would horrify the very devout but for me it's like it did feel to me like it wasn't um uh mocking or uh or or belittling or condescending to the Catholic or the Christian like it felt like there was you know kind of a, a real beating heart at the center of it and it was really getting at you know what Jesus got at which was like the people who run the church are all gigantic assholes well, yeah no one so. in this movie like doesn't want to be close to God right like. exactly yeah like it very much demarcates God from you know the the ruling class of of this religious party yeah right. and I love that uh you were talking about, you know, the sort of soft, slick presentation of movies and the sort of like hard jawed masculinity. And I think you were talking about like storytelling and presentation, but I was, I was also just returning to like, yeah, and that's what like the bodies look like now. And like, um, I, I'm, I'm like someone who is like bored to the point of anger <laughs> by looking at the Marvel bodies. And oh, I love the, all, all the <laughs> And it's, it's, yeah. So, and then you, you kind of hit this, like, once you get the auteurish vision of just like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I'm obsessed with. 
and I'm going to cast Oliver Reed and you're going to be attracted to him. Because, <laughs> well, like, to be fair, Oliver Reed was like universally considered extremely hot at the time. Was he? I'm, I'm not familiar with his reputation at the time it came out. So he was desirable. He was, oh, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. like he was at, at sort of an ebb in his career because he had a terrible lifelong struggle with alcoholism. Um, but yeah, he was he was an enormous hunk. Yeah. He, he exudes hunk energy. That's for sure. Like yeah, I mean, uh, that man can command a crowd. <laughs> yeah. Randall loves a hunk. <laughs> I love a good hunk. I'm a, I'm a big fan of hunks. It's, we live in a hunkless time. <laughs> we do. I can't think of many good hunks off the top of my head that are working today. Working hunks. Yeah. There's like um, Tom Hardy is, is a respectable hunk. Yeah. I'd say that. He's got the, yeah, he's got the hunk energy. Yeah. Um, so Jason Momoa is, is a quintessential hunk, but he's, yes. he's hardly ever in anything good. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, so you had said on on Girls Gets and, and Giallo that nothing goes as hard as the devil's except maybe possession. Um, are there other and Mel's actually gonna see possession for the first time very soon. I'm very excited. On Friday, for her. I can finally go see it in a theater. I've never seen oh, it. Oh man, I am so jealous it isn't playing in Boston. Yeah, it is oh uh, god, that's a that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Where I'm so excited for her to see it because that was a that was definitely sort of um, a seminal theater experience for me. I saw it at like 1 a.m. during a horror film festival like five or six years ago, and it uh, blew my mind. But yeah, uh, are there any other pieces of art you've seen that you'd rank up there with like the Devils and the Possession uh, or Possession, like uh, others that have similarly I think key places in your heart? One that springs to mind immediately is in the realm of the senses which is a movie that's almost entirely sex and it's all unsimulated um it's about the real story of sara abe and her lover who she eventually autoerotically killed um and just sort of tracking their attempts to 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 fuse, to be one person through sex, to never stop having sex and existing in the moment of sex. Um, it's an extremely intense movie. It's very grueling, even though like hardly anything that's very upsetting happens on screen until the end. It just feels like being forced through a sausage making machine. <laughs> like there will come a point at which the most ridiculous contrived sexual positions are just like oh my god more (laughs) it's it's an extremely important movie in my opinion awesome that sounds Sounds great great. uh tell us a little bit about uh manhunt which is coming out i mean would you say that any like any films that you love had an impact on the book itself or was this kind of just a manifestation of of your own interests as a writer as far as films that i love I would say it's closest to probably something like 28 Days Later. That okay. The experience of the world ending and uses it to examine things like gender roles. Um, yeah. But this is a book that's sort of, all right. So I have this, this sort of half-baked thought about apocalyptic media, which is that a lot of it is sort of baseline fascist. Because who's alive in these scenarios? It's it's pretty able-bodied white people mm-hmm. who are all cis and straight and could all plausibly rebuild society. 
and typically they have complete moral license to do anything to anyone who threatens their survival and it's just this sort of fucking blood and soil wet dream yeah <laughs> um, it's just like a video game like, right? yeah. you know, all, the, all the undesirables helpfully died so that they don't have to do a holocaust <laughs> but it's all there <laughs> yeah um and i think it's really disturbing that a lot of art begins from the position that like okay everyone we don't want to look at is dead yeah that's insane to me so manhunt is a book about the world ending and the people who are left over are just people you know they're they're fat they're trans they're disabled they're not likable they're difficult that's the book that i wanted to write um it's sort of a little bit of the Screwfly Solution by James Tiptree. It's a little bit Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones by Tori Peters. But ultimately it's it's just what I wanted to make. Yeah. How long have you been working on it? Well, it's it's been done for a while now. Um, I think I started work on it in late 2019 and I finished in late 2020. Yeah. Yeah, and Very it'll cool. be out February 22nd next year. That's awesome. great. I love, uh, I can't wait to get to On Writing by Stephen King because I have a lot of a lot of weird hangups about how he approaches writing, but also a lot of nice confluences. And I enjoy reading your writing advice on Twitter, which typically amounts to like, you actually just have to sit down and like do the work. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, people want writing advice because they want something to do that isn't writing. That's, yeah. that's my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> I mean- it- Again and again and again and again, and eventually you'll suck less. Yeah, it's all we, practice, unfortunately. But I mean, like, what else? What else is there? Right. Yeah, we just did Bag of Bones as well. We just covered that book, and he talks a lot, even in that book, with um, you know, where the narrator is a writer about how, uh, you know there's no real like secret to writing. It's really just about being diligent. And he's like, he's like every, a lot of people have talent, but who can, you know, he's like, it's really about sitting down at the, at the chair every day and just knocking it out. And he's like, I'm not really that special. I mean, of course he's downplaying it because if you look at the voluminous body of work he's created, I mean, I think even anyone who sits down to write is still not going to make as much as he's made. He also but, though, he, he says all that and it's like, he ennobles it in strange ways too, that I like don't yeah, love. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's that's always been him yeah yeah well cool well, contradictions this... i i just want to bring up that final shot of the devils which i think is like so so looking at that shot i was immediately like oh did fulci just like steal this for the beyond like, <laughs> like this i thought like... that too you did okay i just wanted to see if we were we were on the same page there um the the first time but far from the last that i've wanted to smack lucio fulci across the face <laughs> If there's like a positive version of that scenic, like plague-ridden land, it is how I feel at the end of this conversation. Having the the spread of like narrative wisdom laid out before me, and having seen the devils, and now going into the world, having seen the devils, and <laughs> talked about it with you both, um, Gretchen, where can people find you if they want to read your work or read your thoughts? Well, I'm on Twitter at scumbelievable which is like unbelievable but with scum <laughs> and you can find my patreon through there and typically i'll post links to anything that i write i write for uh, nylon gawker fanbite polygon occasionally cool 
Um, yeah, your that Gawker piece you did on um, consent as it relates to art was definitely one Mel and I texted about a lot. We were big fans of that piece. Oh, um, thank you. So yeah, love your work, love your writing. And uh, thank you again so much for joining us on this. And hopefully we'll see you on the Losers Club as well someday. I would love that. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, thanks so for listening, Gretchen. everybody. This has been a bloody disgusting show. Thanks for tuning in. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>